Hello, and welcome to Sobercast. We provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in a podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting Sobercast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Also, if you're a member of NA or have friends that are, please tell them about our other podcast, NAPOD. NAPOD features NA speakers and workshops in the same format as Sobercast. We upload a new speaker every day, and it's easy to subscribe by searching for NAPOD, N-A-P-O-D, all one word, on any podcast player app, or go to NAPOD.XYZ if you'd like to listen online. Hope you enjoy the podcast and have a great day. And with that, I would like to introduce our speaker, uh, Ethel B. from Palo Alto, and I'm sure and satisfied you'll have a wonderful uh, message. My name is Ethel. I'm a very grateful alcoholic. I don't keep myself anonymous. However, I always have and always will respect anybody else's anonymity. When the committee asked me to speak, I don't know why they took such a responsibility upon themselves. I don't know why they thought that this old bag would still be awake at 10.30 at night. But here I am, and willing to share some of my experiences with you as an active alcoholic and some of my experiences since I've been sober in this wonderful fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I heard on the radio today a definition of happiness. Happiness is a 90-year-old man marrying an 18-year-old girl because he had to. Uh, Another little story that uh, impressed me very, very much that I heard at uh, one of our AA meetings in the area where I come from. We're kind of known as the philosophers in Palo Alto and Menlo Park, but this story I did hear, and I'd like to share this one with you, about the person that was in this mental institution. And for a week, he had watched this farmer wheel by every day at a certain time with a wheelbarrow full of horse manure. So finally, he just got on his nerves, and he yelled out to the farmer. He said, say, what do you do with that wheelbarrow horse manure every day? And the farmer said, I put it on my strawberries. And the poor nut said, gee, I always put cream on mine, and look where I ended up. (laughs) So you see, we do have some swinging groups in my area. I don't think it's important to go into a long case history of myself as an active alcoholic. But I have to share some things with you. I don't remember when I took my first drink. The only thing I do know that I was a shy person. I know many speakers say that our alcoholism was but a symptom of some underlying things that were wrong with us. However, I don't feel that way for myself. I was raised in a family where there was love, discipline, and God. 
There was no reason for me to turn to alcohol except that I liked it. I liked what it did for me. I'm very grateful that in this program that we don't have to tell our age. But I will share with you that for the past two years, I have been carrying my Medicare card around with me. And if you're not so much of an idiot, you know you can get your Medicare card at 65 and you add two years on to that. And God willing, I will be 67 this month. I don't believe... <laughs> I don't believe that I would have lived to this age if I hadn't found this program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Give you a little of my background. I told you I was raised in a family where there was love, God, and discipline. I'm the youngest of four children. You don't have to try to guess the other ages, but uh, they're not in wheelchairs yet. Um, I don't know if I was spoiled or not growing up. I haven't any idea. I did drink at a real early age. As I said, I did, did it because I liked to drink. I drank all through the prohibition area. And at that time, I was able to go to the finer places in New York City where I was raised. And certainly by this twang, you know that I wasn't raised any other place but New York City. And uh, it wasn't too long after my sister got married in 1921, and my other brother also got married in 1921, and unfortunately, I lost my oldest brother all in 1921. Up until this time, we were all a very, very happy, happy family. We had many, many laughs in our home. And it was a great home. I have a lot of respect for my mother and for my dad. We were a middle-class family, I would say, but I never wanted for anything as a child. And there was no reason, as I say, to have turned out the way I did later on in my drinking. So I said for many years, I considered myself the social drinker in the family. And the reason for that is that it wasn't maybe a couple of years after my sister got married and my brother got married that they started to drink periodically. And I couldn't understand this. I couldn't understand why during they had these periods of sobriety and all of a sudden they were on these terrible binges and they always had to be hospitalized. Needless to say that this brought an awful lot of chaos into our home and I grew to dislike these two people very, very much. I knew what they were doing to my mother and father, and I thought it was just terrible. And my feeling at that time was that they were married, and we shouldn't have to have all of their troubles coming into our home all the time. But because of these two characters, I think they kind of made a sneaky drinker out of me. So I drank away from home on many, many occasions. I had the type of mother that never cared if I didn't come home as long as she knew where I was. And many a time, really, I stayed away from home because I knew I was going to drink too much. I knew I could not stop at the first drink. 
And during my days when I thought I was a sociable drinker, I was known as the life of the party. I would do anything and everything, and I really enjoyed myself. I had a good sense of humor, and please God, I never used the, used, lose the one that I have, because I would not be able to stay sober, I don't think, without my good sense of humor. So this went on for many, many years. And in 1929, I was employed in Wall Street, that's the financial district back in New York City, and I was a telephone operator. And I was known as a pretty good Joe in those days. I had to know where there was a bootlegger. I had to know where there was a bookmaker. I had to know where there was a house of ill repute for the men that desired this type of service. So I was known as the good Joe of the office. I used to keep a list of the boys that called in that were hungover and couldn't make it. And I used to uh, give the boss a snow job as to what was wrong with them. But you see, when the time came, when I had to make up an excuse, I had no one to cover for me. But that was a little bit later on in my drinking. I will say for the first, up until about 1940, I attended my job very, very well. I don't know why I drank the way I did, because I always got sick from alcohol. I always got sick from alcohol. If you think it was funny to try to find a quiet place on the New York subways to puke, believe me, it wasn't. It was very, very difficult, but I couldn't, I'd get off the train. See, in those days, I could not stay home because my mother would say, you're getting like your sister, you're getting like your brother. And as I said, I didn't like to be like these two people. I never ask anybody how they stayed sober. I always ask everybody, what do they do for a hangover? And somebody told me to get bromoselsa, which I did. I became a bromoselsa fiend, really. Somebody else told me to take olive oil before I went out, and I did that. And somebody had the bright idea and told me to take pickle herring for hangover. I hope someday I meet that person in the program. Because that puke came out of my ears, my eyes, my nose, and every place. I never tried that one again, believe me. No one, fortunately, at that time told me to take the morning drink. I hadn't been introduced to that yet. As I say, I could not stay home from work in those days. It's just impossible. So this is the way I had to, and it was very easy when I got to my job, to get a drink because alcohol and drinking down there was not frowned on at all, believe me. I had a very understanding boss. And he put up with me for many years. But I knew that my drinking was getting a little bit worse. And I believe the first time I was introduced to my morning drink was when I was away on a vacation. And I remember very well, it was Labor Day weekend. 
And I was terribly, terribly sick. I drank rum and Coca-Cola, which I wasn't used to drinking. And I got deathly sick. And I remember I stayed in my room for almost two days. And then somebody got the bright idea to come up and get me and put me out bodily, mattress and all, onto the lawn. And this one chap there said, maybe if we give her a drink. And he did. Now I found my cure. I found now what I could do when I had a hangover. But you see, in order for me to get this drink down, I only thought of this the other day. And I'm very grateful for the second step. Restore me to sanity. See, my idea was, and this is the way I tried to cure myself of that hangover. I stayed in the bathroom with the cold water running, with my finger under the cold water, and then down my throat, until I got the bile up. And when I got the yellow bile up, I knew it wouldn't be too long that the green bile would come up. So I worked very hard to get that green bile up. And that was only for one reason. I was cured, and then I could go out and drink again. Now, if that is an insanity, I don't know what is. So this was pretty much the way I maneuvered. I remembered one day, for some unknown reason, I got short of money. And I was in New York, and I suddenly grabbed this guy by the sleeve of the coat, and I was making a citizen's arrest. And I got the cop, and he wanted to know what happened. And I said that this guy rolled me for $7. Now, why I came to the amount of $7, I don't know. And this poor slob, whom I had never seen in my life, and hope I've never seen since, he had to give me $7. And the cop said to me, do you want to have him arrested? And I said, no, just hold on to that bum until I get down the subway. You see, I reached the, uh, from going from a very sociable, very happy drunk, I went to a very belligerent drunk. And this was really, really bad. The only reason I never had been arrested or got a 502 was because I didn't have a car. See, I, I did use the subway. But if there was any chance of getting a, a ticket in the subway, I really should have had many. There was many things that I did in that subway, believe me. Coming home late at night, for some unknown reason, they always locked the bathrooms. And you know, when you have to go, you have to go. So, the only place I could go was the telephone booth. But you see, I was always a lady. I used to have a little hat on. And I would find a little mirror, and I would go over and adjust this little hat. And the stream would be coming out of the booth. And I stood there very defiant, like, who, me? You know? Somebody asked me one time, did I use the telephone booth for the turtle tissue? And I said, hell no, I usually had a glove on. So I had many, many gloves when I came into this program, believe you me. 
And I, I think the thing that frightened me most uh, were my blackouts. I, some days I didn't know whether I was working or I wasn't working. And I had to imagine I ran a big two-position switchboard. And I had to call one of the buddies in the office to find out if I had been working or not. And this, this, now this was normal drinking, I thought. Normal drinking. As I said, this continued until 1940, when my mother passed away very suddenly. Now, this was quite a shock to me. In the meantime, we took my sister in with us to try to keep house for my dad and myself. And this was really a physical impossibility. Because during her periods of sobriety, anyone that drank stunk. And of course, I was the one that stunk. And was trouble all the time. She used to tell my father that I was drunk if I wasn't drunk. And I took enough of this, and in 1941, I decided to move out and take my own apartment. And I did. I had very, very little money at this time. I remember I had to cash in an insurance policy to get this little apartment together. And I did. And after I did this, uh, I, I felt somewhat a free, and particularly after my mother had passed on, I figured I couldn't hurt her anymore, and I would drink the way I felt like drinking. And it was at this time now that I started to miss time from work. And I remember my boss calling me up, and he said to me, Caney, do you know that we are at war? And I said to him, if we are, I'm quite sure I didn't start it. And I hung up on him. So the only place I could go to find out whether we're at war or not was over to the bar, naturally. So I went there and they told me that we were at war. You see, up until this time, I did not frequent the bars and grills in my area. They're a little bit beneath me. I uh, said, as I told you earlier in my talk, that I always had been able to go to the better places. It wasn't too long when I wasn't even being allowed in these places. They would have my, the bartender would leave a note, the night bartender would leave a note for the day bartender, don't let Ethel Kane in because she had the cops here last night. So you see, I was being barred from these places. But fortunate for me, these they changed owners rather quickly around there. So then I was able to get back into them again. But I didn't last too long. I used to frighten people quite often in my drinking, and sometimes my face would turn very, very red and I'd scare everybody, and I'd say, oh, that's nothing, I'm going through the menopause. And then another time I would get real purple, so I'd tell them, oh, don't worry, that's, I have a real bad heart. And I think my vision was getting blurred, because one morning I was sitting there, 
I was very, very fond of animals. And I looked and I saw this cat. I thought the cat was coming in. And I said, look at that poor cat with one eye. And someone said, you stupid ass, that cat's on its way out. <laughs> so, you see, my vision, my vision it was getting blurred, too. <laughs> Talk about the bell of the ball, huh? <laughs> you know, I often sit and I laugh at many, many things. I think it's great that we can laugh at ourselves. I really and truly do. There were many things that I did, but I think the things that frightened me most, as I said before, were the blackouts. They really and truly scared me. I fell asleep so many, many times in the subway. I reached a point where I thought I ought to put a badge on, like this, you know. If you find this thing any place, please deliver it too. I was always getting lost in the subway. I would fall asleep, I'd find myself away up in New York, fall asleep again, I'd be away out in Brooklyn. And one night they found me at Atlantic Avenue, Brooklyn, and where was I? Asleep on a bench. And the guard woke me up and said, what happened? And I said, somebody hit me on my head, and, I, and they robbed me of my purse. So the next thing you know, I was en route in an ambulance to the hospital. And I remember there, they put me in three different beds. I don't know why, but they kept transferring me. And all I wanted to do was sleep. Jesus, I didn't. I just wanted to sleep. So I thought that, um, that this was all taken care of. My mother was still living in that, at that time. And she did come over and she got me. And I got the regular, you know, chatter-chatter about you getting like your drunken sister and your drunken brother. So anyway, about two days after this escapade, a detective came to my home, and he said to me, do you think you can identify your assailant? I said, no. Um, I said, Shh, leave here as quick as possible. I said, I was drunk. I don't know what happened. And I said, I have a tremendous job in Wall Street, and I can't have this get into the paper, so please leave me alone. So he did. And this happened only once that I was put into this hospital, thank God. I had never been hospitalized other than that little escapade. I think I should have been at different times. I remember my sister used to call me in the morning when I'd be home, couldn't make the office, and she'd say to me, what were you drinking last night? And if I was drinking beer, she'd bring me booze. And if I was drinking booze, she'd bring me beer. And the two of us used to sit in my living room, and she'd look at me, and she'd say, you know, Ethel, if I ever got as sick as you do from liquor, I wouldn't drink. And I used to look at her and say, I wish to hell you did get sick. Maybe you wouldn't drink so much, you know. But and when she was drinking, I couldn't do anything for her. But she tried so hard to help me. And I know on a few occasions she did get a doctor for me. 
So this was the way that I was living. I tried to commit suicide on three different occasions. I met a chap in 1943, and this was absolute chaos. I knew that he was a, had a drinking problem. I knew that I wasn't going to give up booze. He knew he wasn't going to give up booze. And we both knew neither one of us could handle it. So I refer to this as the alcoholic romance. I had many a black eye. I had my face busted one time. You know, but in those days, I could still throw a pretty good punch. I wasn't always on the receiving end. I messed him up a few times, too. My boss also wrote me a letter in 1943 and told me that he was getting sick and tired of me. And I thought he had an awful nerve to write a nice girl like me such a letter. So I took it over to Pat, my favorite bartender, and I said, Pat, what do you think of this letter? So he looked it over very carefully, and he said, I don't know, Ethel. He said, you spend an awful lot of time here. And he said, we often wondered what you really had on your boss, that you get away with what you get away with. He said, the other day you were here, and you said to print a sign. Put Ethel Kane is working today, and on the other side, put Ethel Kane is not working today, and put it in the window. Because I got sick and tired of people asking me how I was getting away with what I was getting away with. So you see, I became a very belligerent drunk. I don't believe I ever read a book on how to become obnoxious, but this is the way I became. I used to get different jags on. I remember I used to get out, I used to go out looking for a gangster. Uh, I figured anyone that had a camel's hair coat and a Hamburg hat and a cigar, he was a gangster. And I was out to show this character that I was just as tough as he was. I couldn't fight my way out of a paper bag, but I tried. I used to get drunk in Brooklyn and grab a cab and go along the waterfront, the Navy Yard, where nobody goes, really. And I used to stop there, and the cab driver would say, you don't want to go in there. I said, I certainly do. And in I would go. I guess he used to wait for the body to come out. I don't know. but I went in there just looking for a fight. I was just as tough as the next one, so I thought. This wasn't very ladylike, I don't think. But you see, this to me was still normal drinking. I never, never realized until I came into this wonderful fellowship that it was the first drink that threw me. I used to figure I was a pretty good two-fisted drinker. I had no room for some slob that had two drinks and passed out. And I had to spend some of my time trying to revive her in the ladies' room. Here I was missing all the fun at the bar. I figured if a babe like that didn't know how to drink, she shouldn't drink. Because a dope like me that stood up until I fell down, I thought that was all right, you know. I was running out of excuses on my job, and I remember that um, 
I went over one morning. Where do you go when you're trying to find something intelligent? Only to a bar. And you really can find intelligence there in the morning. Jesus, terrible. One looks worse than the other. And I said to this character, now I know I'm going to get fired. When I said, if you call up and say exactly what I tell you to say, nothing will happen. So I said, you tell him, be sure you talk to my boss, nobody else, only my boss. And you say that Ethel can't make it today because her mother is very, very, that her sister is, her sister is very, very ill. So I waited there, you know, when I was having a drink for myself. And this intelligent character came out of the booth. And I said to him, what did you say? Did you talk to my boss? And he said, yes, I did. But he said, Ethel, I made it better. I told him that your mother was very, very sick. And I said, that's fine, you stupid son of a bitch. I said, my mother's dead since 1940, and my boss was at the funeral. <laughs> so I thought, what am I going to do now? So I had to have a few more drinks. So then I started to think that my sister is getting so old that she looks like my mother. And this fella got confused. <laughs> so I got away with that. I got away with many things, believe me. I told you about this chap in the alcoholic romance. Well, he passed away in 1947. And this was very sudden, too. And this was the third boyfriend I buried. People used to say, how come a nice girl like you never got married, Ethel? And I used to say, well, I can't marry them and bury them at the same time. And I seemed to be burying them. That's the way my life went, as far as men were concerned. I knew, as I said before, that my drinking was getting out of hand. And the third time that I tried to commit suicide, I was then sent to Burke's Foundation in White Plains, New York. They, don't, they didn't take alcoholics up there at that time. So I went up there as very extremely nervous. And they put me in the Alexander Cottage, and that was for the nervous people. I didn't dare tell the people at home or my boss or anybody that some of my therapy up there was feeding peanuts to the squirrels because I thought they really thought I had flipped. And I stayed up there for a month, and I no longer wanted to come back. I tried to get a job there, and no jobs were available. I think now that fear set in. However, I didn't have to return again. And I stayed sober for a while, and this was on fear. But I went back again to drinking, and the rat race started all over again. I don't ever remember at any time in my drinking career that I went out with the idea of getting drunk. I never went out saying, I'm mad at this one, or I'm upset about this, and I'm going to get drunk. But I always ended up the same way. The person that I did not want to be, believe me. 
Now, I knew for a couple of years that my brother Arthur belonged to some drunken organization. Now, I didn't know what it was, and I wasn't interested. But he called me one night, and he said to me, I just put your sister in Kings County Hospital. And I said, that's fine. I wouldn't put a dog there. And he informed me that he thought that I was drinking too much, too. And I informed him that it was none of his business. However, I'm very happy and very grateful to say that the program of Alcoholics Anonymous was brought to my sister while she was in Kings County Hospital. That was in August of 1948. She started to go to her meetings, and she hasn't found it necessary to take a drink since her first AA meeting. And being periodic, I think that that was real good. I used to meet my sister at night. We used to have dinner together. She was always well-groomed, and I'd say to her, where are you going tonight? And she said, I am going to a meeting, an AA meeting. And I said, do you have to go with those drunks every night in the week? And she said, yes, Ethel, it's very important. And she said, do you know, Ethel, I found out when I'm sober three months that I, too, can go out and help another drunk. And I thought to myself, she is cracking up. She can't help herself, and she's going to go out and help some other drunk. I couldn't understand it. So one night she called me, and she said to me, would you like to go to an AA meeting? So I thought this would be a nice gesture on my part if I could help this drunken sister of mine to stay sober. So I attended my first AA meeting, September 25th, 1948. My brother and sister picked me up. They took me to a very large group. This group was having a second anniversary. There were a couple of hundred people there. They marched me down the aisle. My sister was in front of me, and my brother was behind me, and I thought they had to bring something like me to the meeting. For some unknown reason, they put me on the platform that night, and I faced the people. I hadn't any idea what was going on. I thought they were going to call on me to speak. So I dropped my ashtray. I spilled coffee. I was extremely nervous. And after the meeting, they were introducing me as the non-alcoholic alcoholic. And this didn't make sense to me. My sister came over to me and she said, you know, Ethel, if, if you're bored here, she said, uh, there's a bar downstairs. You can go down there and have a few drinks for yourself. And somehow I didn't think it was the thing to do. You know, when I looked at these people, they all looked so happy. They had something in their eyes that was almost indescribable. But I thought to myself, believe me, they must be smoking marijuana cigarettes. And I wouldn't take their cigarettes that night. During this meeting, I heard something about 12 suggested steps. And I thought, boy, 
When they get to the dancing part of this program, that will be for me. You see, my sister and I had taught dancing at one time. So I was trying to figure out three to the front and three to the back and three to the right and three to the left. That would be 12 steps, very simple and very easy. So as I say, they gathered up this literature for me. And when I went home that night, needless to say, I started to look over these dance numbers. They became very, very important to me in my recovery from alcoholism. And I realized that this was far from a dancing program. I found out that it was a program that would work for me if I wanted it to work. I called my sister after that and I said to her, I would like to go to another meeting. And she said, well, I'm going to a closed meeting. But she said, uh, you can't go. It's only for alcoholics. So I said, oh, I think I'm one. You see, my sister could not tell me that I was an alcoholic. I had to find this out for myself. So that's how I started. And another thing I held on to that night at that meeting, I felt once I had exposed myself to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that I no longer could drink. And of course, being a big mouth, I shouted it from the rooftop. I went over to my favorite bartender, who I owed $10, and I said, here's, here's your $10. I said, I joined Alcoholics Anonymous. And he looked at me and he said, well, thank Christ for that. <laughs> so I must have been getting to be quite a backbreaker. So that's how I started in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's why I'm so grateful. I'm grateful to the people when I first came in this fellowship that took the time to take me to the different institutions and show me my yes. So I'm a very fortunate person that I got this program offered to me when I did. I believe for myself I have stayed sober because I have tried to be active in this program. I found us a program that I have to give away in order for me to keep. I'd like to say that since I've been sober, that I didn't have any crises in my life, this would not be so. The first thing I had, I developed ulcers. And I went to AA meetings for six months. I didn't smoke a cigarette and I didn't drink coffee. See, I wanted to stay well. They suggested to me, once I got myself physically well, I had to get myself mentally well, and that I had to stick with people that were the winners. I had to do this in order to recover. So I was like a little child when I started in this program. I listened to what all the people had told me, and I tried very hard to live that way. And so far, I have been successful. As I said, the first thing I had was ulcers. The next thing I had, my dad passed away, but I was sober a little over a year then, and I was able to cope with these things. I also had, in 1953, I had shingles, and they weren't the kind you put on a roof, believe me. I suffered untold agony. I went to a place in the East for alcoholics because 
the men in my group felt this is where I should go because I was terribly confused. It was a terrible thing to go through. And also in 1953, I had to undergo surgery. And at this time, they didn't know whether it was going to be cancer or not. But the good Lord was with me. It wasn't. But at this, all through these things, all my friends that came to visit me, it was just tremendous. AA people never let you down when you have a crisis or a situation. I didn't marry a man in this program in 1955. He was a man from Palo Alto, and that's the reason I moved to the West Coast. I wasn't out here too long when my husband, after 11 and a half years of sobriety, returned to drinking. He was not an obnoxious drunk. So I know what the fears were to wait for him to come home at night. He had a couple of spills in this program. And finally he came home one time and said to me that he no longer could live the way he was living. Now I thought I was a good wife. I thought I did everything that I was supposed to do. But this marriage terminated four years ago, last January. But you see, I didn't have to drink about it. But I know what it is to go through emotions because I became very, very emotional at this time. Because, you see, I had many things at this time. I had things in a material way that doesn't mean and didn't really mean anything. But it was just like yanking a carpet out from underneath my feet. But through all my friends in AA and having the humility to ask for help when I needed it, there were some men that were very near and dear to me at that time in this program that knew my husband and I since 1956 when I moved here. They were not afraid that I would drink, but they were afraid that maybe I would lose my mind, that I might end up in Agnes State Hospital. But to see with this tremendous help, this tremendous help that's behind us, this force in this program of Alcoholics Anonymous, it's very hard to explain. But however, I got through that, and I didn't have to drink. I am not divorced today, but my husband is still living the life that he chose to live. I have no resentments against my husband. I figure in my program, I have to work my program my way, he has to work his program his way. He is entitled to live the way he wants to live, and I'm entitled to live the way I want to live. You see, the difference in me in sobriety, had I still been actively drinking, or if I became insane enough to drink at this time, I know exactly what would have happened. If I went back to that belligerent person that I was, I know I'm afraid I would have done some harm to him and probably to this other woman. I don't know. So that's another reason I'm grateful for this program, that I did not have to become insane enough. And to me, it would be insanity if I reached for a drink. I have found out in this program that alcohol to me is poison, and I might just as well take a drink of poison. At any time today, if I happen to be in a place where liquor is served, I'm not there very often, but if I'm in a market where there is liquor on the shelf, I just look at it and I put the big skeleton on it 
and this is the way I handle alcohol today. In spite of all the crises that I've been through, to me it was all worth it. Because, you see, I believe for myself that my sobriety in the beginning was built on a very, very good foundation. And this foundation became stronger all the time. And the reason it became so strong was that I tried to put a lot back into this wonderful fellowship. I attended many, many meetings. I went every night in the week. And I still go most every night in the week. So you see, I too, today, try to be a good member of Alcoholics Anonymous, in good standing, and that's all I want to be, really. And if I can possibly share anything with anybody, I'm very grateful to do it. I think that I would like now to thank Max and the committee for having invited me to speak. I would like to thank all you wonderful people for listening. And I would like to close as I usually close. If you are here and you have sobriety, please, God, you keep it. And if you're here seeking sobriety, please, God, you get it. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.